It's Tuesday, November 26th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in the studio today from Fool.com, David Hansen and Morgan Housel. Happy Tuesday, guys. Hey, same to you. We're going to talk retail. We're going to talk Thanksgiving. And yes, speaking of Thanksgiving, it is a short week for us here at Market Foolery. This is this is it for the week. So we're we're off tomorrow. We're off for Thanksgiving. We will be back on Monday. Fortunately, I'm reminded with David Hansen sitting right next to me that uh, Where the Money Is, if you're not listening to the Where the Money Is podcast, you should be. You should be checking it out. So that that is uh, that is available to help get you through Thanksgiving week. All right. Um, let's start, however, with an industry that, frankly, I didn't think of as being particularly intriguing. And uh, it turns out I'm, I'm wrong, at least based on recent events, and that is men's apparel retail. Uh, just a quick reminder, last month, Joseph A. Bank offered to buy Men's Warehouse for $2.3 billion. Men's Warehouse immediately said no. Uh, David, they also uh, uh, also immediately adopted a poison pill to prevent a hostile takeover. And then today, they turned the tables on Joseph A. Bank, and they offered to buy them out for $1.5 billion. Both stocks are up, so clearly... There are a lot of investors who love the idea of these two companies getting together. Yeah, so so Men's Warehouse rejected the deal. And the, one of the reasons they rejected it is because they didn't think it was a good price. And the other one was that Joseph Bank wanted to come in and do some due diligence, a.k.a. look at all their books. Right. So Men's Warehouse is like, you're not looking at our books. Get out of here. <laughs> um, but Joseph A. Bank, after the offer was rejected, they said, well, we're, we'd be open if you wanted to buy us too. So it's not like this was bad blood. Joseph A. Bank was still interested in getting bought out by Men's Warehouse. So now we're getting this offer here and the stock is trading above the offer price. So I guess the market and some some big institutional investors, some hedge funds out there are thinking that this could go higher. So we'll see. I was just going to say, it seems, Morgan, like two signals. One, we like this idea. And two, we are pretty confident that a higher bid is coming. Yeah, and we we know that these companies are going to end up together eventually because they want each other. This is going to work its way out in the end. The other reason is because a huge number of shareholders that own men's warehouse stock also own Joseph A. Bank stock. There's a lot of uh, cross-shareholders there. So it's in pretty much everyone's best interest that these companies get together. So in in the men's suit industry, it's really you have two sides. You have the upper end of like the Calvin Klein, the Gucci suits, the Armani suits, and then you have this bottom like 90% that is pretty much controlled more or less by Men's Warehouse and, and Joseph A. Bank. And it's very competitive in that lower end. That's why you have all these deals, that, you know, buy a pair of socks and get 10 suits free or whatever. Right. You know, I'm exaggerating, but only slightly. There. Only slightly. So it's... <laughs> For anyone so who's it's, heard those radio commercials. Right, right. Right. So it's it's very competitive. And if you were to link these two companies up, you could get a lot of, quote unquote, synergies in business talk where you can they can share marketing budgets, they can share, share managing budgets. However, whenever you have these big me, these big mega mergers in a very competitive industry, I'll say two words here. Sears, Kmart. How did that end up? Not so so it's not it's it's. It's it's not necessarily a slam dunk, I would say, for long-term shareholders. I think of these two companies as being, from a consumer standpoint, basically the same. If I need a suit, oh, I could go to either one of them, and I'll be fine at either location. And yet, David, in terms of the stock performance, Men's Warehouse has been crushing Joseph A. Bank. I mean, last one, two, five years, it's a very solid market, Peter. I guess, I mean, you say they're, they're pretty similar. And if I were would be dropped into a store and didn't know which one it was. I probably wouldn't be able to to pick out which one. But I think Men's Warehouse maybe skews 
maybe a little bit more upscale. I'm definitely not upscale, but compared to Joseph Bank, maybe it's just a little bit. So maybe they're in a little bit of a better market there in terms of pricing. But I'm with Morgan. I don't know if there's a lot of long-term opportunity here for shareholders. I think this is the situation where the offer's on the table. There's going to be activists. There's going to be merger arb hedge funds that come in and try to get this offer higher, get this offer a little, squeeze a little bit more out of the deal. I don't get excited about the end product here, so I'm kind of just sitting back and watching. What's really important too is, uh, in terms of who buys who, does Men's Warehouse buy Joseph A. Bank or the other the other way around? Why that matters is because uh, whose management team is going to take over in the end. So that's why it's important in terms of who buys who here, because whoever buys what company the buyer's management team is probably going to be the one that sticks around while the other one will probably get the boot. So. Well, and if you own both stocks, wouldn't you want Men's Warehouse executives to be running this show? Because uh, I'm just guessing here, but my assumption is that the stock performance is reflective of better operations, better inventory control, better everything. It's possible. But uh, you're saying I don't it's just know. a happy I mean, coincidence that they they've got morons maybe, running men's I mean, warehouse. They just happen to beat the market over the well, last five men's years. Men's warehouse hasn't their management team hasn't been especially a, a happy-go-lucky place over the past year. I mean, That's we've true. seen the founder ousted. They booted George Zimmer, the it's, iconic George Zimmer. It's not like this is an unbelievable management team that's just been great over the past years, and it's all happy-go-lucky. So He is no longer guaranteeing it. Yes, he he exactly. is no longer guaranteeing it. Um, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, uh, we're going to do this on the Motley Fool Money radio show this week. Um, but I figured we could just do it here on Market for you as well. Just something in the world of business you are thankful for. It can be a stock, a business leader, an idea, anything, and one that's a turkey. Morgan, I'll just start with you. Okay. Something you're thankful for. Okay, this is this is a little bit obscure, but here I go. I'm still thankful. I, I, I'm sorry, I should say I am thankful that buy and hold investing still works. And I say that because if we were doing a show five years ago, there would have been so many analysts and articles and books writing about the death of buy and hold investing. Oh yeah. And they used the 2008 crash to prove that, saying, look, buy and hold doesn't work anymore. And really what they were doing was they were looking at a very short time frame, one year or two years, to prove that it didn't work. But that was never what buy and hold investing is about. Buy and hold is about five years, 10 years, 20 years. And with the, the, the market recovery over the past five years, I think we've really proved that, that if you're investing for 10 years or 15 years, nothing that has happened over the last decade uh, disproves buy and hold. And really, the investors that have done the best over the past 10 years are the investors that bought and never look back, not the investors that are always jumping in and jumping out. So there's still hope for long-term investors, and I'm thankful for that. I was up in New York last week at our uh, brand-new studio, uh, Tom Gardner and I did Investor Beat together, and we were chatting afterwards, and uh, I had taped an, an additional interview with Tom, and one of the things he talked about was his belief, and I think he's absolutely right, that one thing that everyone can do to become a better investor is just immediately double your holding period. If you're someone who just you only hold a stock for a few months, bump that up to six months. One year, make it two years. And you know, I think the stats that you're talking about absolutely bear that out. Right. I mean, you know, the the single largest factor that I've found that separates good investors from bad investors is simply the amount of time that they are investing for. And really, I think the the largest market gains over time come to the most patient, not not even the smartest. It's not the smartest investors who win. It's the, the investors who stick it out the longest. And I, I might be putting Morgan on the spot here, but if we look at the S&P, I don't think there's – has there been a 20-year period – where investors have lost money 
no matter where you're starting. So even if you're taking kind of the depth of March 2009, 20 years ago, you'd still be positive, right? So even in real terms, which is when you uh, when you strip out inflation, there is never. this is going back to the 1870s, so almost all the way back to the Civil War. There's never been a 20-year period when stock investors lost money. And on the flip side, there have been 20-year periods where bond investors, treasury investors, lost half their money. So that, that really uh, flips the concept of risk on its head, I think. By the way, do you... You just reminded me, I met someone recently just making small talk and it came up uh, that um, this woman, what, what her father does for a living is um, he's a day trader. That's what she said. Well, my dad's a day trader. Do you run into people who still say that or, or say, oh, yeah, I know he's a day trader? And, and if so, what is your reaction? Because all I can think to say is, and how's that going? Because it's just like, really? There are de- you know, how, you're a day trader? How, how are you possibly making a living doing that? I think you could probably make maybe make money day trading 20 years ago i think you, there was the market was still inefficient enough 20 years ago that you could probably do it i think today it is nearly impossible why do so many people still do it well why do so many people still play blackjack it's because you have a few people that win a lot of money by luck more or less luck and maybe uh, uh, slot machines is a, a better example than blackjack but because a few people win a lot, that keeps people's hopes alive that they can do it too. So even though they're losing and losing and losing, they still have these stories that keep their spirit alive and they keep doing it. That, I think, explains most of why people day trade. David, something you're thankful for? Day trading Zillow. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I am thankful for the stock Zillow. And some people might be like, oh, that's a crazy thing to be thankful for. It's so expensive. Well, I'm somewhat thankful for it because I bought it over a year ago and it's up 200%. So that makes me feel okay. But I'm, I'm planning on holding it for the long term. So don't, don't worry, Morgan. You're just using this as an excuse to take a victory lap. A little bit. But uh, <laughs> so, so a lot of people look at this stock today and say, man, you are insane to buy Zillow. And at traditional, quote, traditional valuations, it does look pretty crazy. But I think the market's overlooking some really impressive things about the company and about the market that it's in. So if we talk about the, uh, the world of online real estate. They have a roughly 34% market share. And the two closest competitors, Trulia and the other guys down there, are actually losing ground. So Zillow is gaining market share in this burgeoning online real estate world. And their market is real estate agents. And real estate agents, they pay, uh, spend an average of almost $10 billion a year on advertising. Right now, Zillow is only doing $125 million in sales. So they are such a tiny player in this enormous market. And on the, in the online world, they're the biggest ones out there. So what, what the, the kind of the thesis for Zillow going forward is all these people are coming to the, to the internet to look at homes and to look at real estate and rent and stuff like that. Over time, eventually real estate agents and advertisers will go where the eyeballs are. They've started to, so $125 million is nothing to laugh at. But $10 billion is a pretty darn huge market out there. So I think they have a good management team, a huge market opportunity. So it looks expensive on paper, but I'm still thankful for the stock. Are the quarterly results for Zillow such that as a shareholder and an analyst, you look at them and you look forward to 2014 and you think, wow, they really better crush it because we've seen recently, this most recent earnings season, companies that came out with perfectly good, even very good results – and the stock gets whacked 10% because they were, if they weren't priced for perfection, they mm-hmm. were darn close. 
Yeah, I mean, it's going to be that way. It's gonna, it, this is a type of stock. Any growth stock is going to be very volatile around earnings. If, oh, man, it didn't look quite as good. Let's sell it off 20%. Yeah. So it's going to have its ups and downs. But I think what's important is just people coming to the platform. I think they have around 64 million monthly users, people coming to the site. That's a lot of people. And as that continue to grow, as I, I'm on the, on the bandwagon saying that advertisers will follow those eyeballs. I am not a Berkshire Hathaway shareholder, but I am thankful for the dynamic duo of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. And maybe it's because of our proximity to Washington, D.C., and by proximity, I mean it's right across the river. But I just appreciate when those guys come out because they seem like such grown-ups. They seem like <laughs> such adults. And in Washington, D.C., yes, in the business world, but also in the political world, it seems like we're lacking for grown-ups. And when those guys talk... The gravitas that they bring to the conversation is just really impressive and, frankly, needed. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not even necessarily the intelligence of, of, of hearing them talk. It's the wisdom. It's yeah. a very different thing. It's just the, the, this, this homegrown, you know, mom and apple pie wisdom that comes to them. And it's really incredible. And I'm thankful to have it, too, because they're both aging, especially Munger. They're not going to be around forever. Yeah. Uh, before we get to our uh, final topic, a couple of housekeeping notes. Uh, I mentioned last Thursday, uh, David, when you were here and Matt Copenheffer was here, we were talking about the run for shelter race, uh, which benefits the Carpenter Shelter here in Alexandria. The Motley Fool was one of the corporate sponsors. All three of us ran. Morgan uh, and I ran the 10K. David Hansen finishing in the top 20 in the 5K. Out of 20 participants. <laughs> out of hundreds and hundreds of participants. Um, but at the time, and Morgan, you weren't here. I don't know if you listened. But at the time, I said, I'm predicting a top 12 finish for Matt Copenheffer. And David, what was Matt's reaction to that? When I said, I think you're going to finish in the top he 12. Thought, he thought the, you were crazy. He was like, it was no, very high hopes. I very high hopes. Um, and in fact, where did Matt finish in the 10K race? Number one. He finished first, and it wasn't even close. He finished first by a couple of minutes. Um, it was great to see. Matt is a human machine, for those who don't know him. He, he, he would never admit this himself, so I'm going to say it for him. About three months ago, he did a 100-mile trail run. that took him 23 hours to finish. Yeah. That is superhuman strength. He's incredible. He won $100 right. and a frozen turkey, which I, I don't think any of us knew that that was part of the prize, which he very nicely immediately donated back to the Carpenter's Shelter. But, um, but yeah. So, yeah, when Matt Kuppenheffer tries to downplay results for a future race, I think the lesson there is don't listen to him. Right. Don't listen to him at all. Uh, one more thing. Washingtonian Magazine is out with their uh, best places to work list. They do this every two years. And I'm happy to say for the fourth time in a row, The Motley Fool is on the list of the 50 best places to work in Washington, D.C. Feels good. People can't see us right now, but we're actually sitting in a jacuzzi with pina coladas right now. <laughs> it's... We, we have the jacuzzi on whisper mode. That's why you can't hear it. Uh, but uh, if you're in the D.C. area or you're moving here, uh, check out our uh, our HR blog, which uh, the URL is just culture.fool.com. That's culture.fool.com. We've got a bunch of open positions. We are hiring. Um, we're also still looking for summer 2014 interns. So check it out, culture.fool.com. As we wrap up, in keeping with the Thanksgiving theme, something in the business world that's a turkey. That's a turkey. This has been a long-running gripe of mine, but I think it's getting worse and worse. The amount of financial information out there 
articles and reports and whatnot is become so overwhelming that the investor trying to tiptoe in the market, if if they're just going to the news feeds, selecting, they're just going to be completely overwhelmed with the river of information. It's become more important than ever to have some sort of filter and find the good sources, sources that you like, sources that you can trust. It's become more important than ever. That's one of the things I like about Twitter is you can just start following people and – It's a great filtering mechanism. It's, it's a wonderful filtering mechanism. David, something you're uh, thinking out there in the business world that's a turkey? Got another stock for you. Okay. Abercrombie and Fitch. Oh, man. It's so bad. Teen retail. <laughs> okay. Maybe the stock isn't horrible because I, I think this is a potential buyout here. I think some private equity firms out there could – have a big ego and say, we're going we're gonna to do an LBO on Abercrombie and & Fitch and get a lot of value out of this. So I think that's possible. But the business is so bad at Abercrombie. I think a couple times when I was on the show a few episodes ago, I said, I think this is the worst business of all time. Yeah. And it's performing that way. <laughs> it's so bad. And I can't see any hope other than a buyout here of why this company will be around in five years. I just don't see it. We talk about teen retail being so fickle. This is like the ficklest of the fickles right here. And, and that CEO know. is a – that guy's it's a just, nightmare. There's nothing good about it. Good, there's nothing good here. And I think the only hope is that you get a buyout. But without getting too wonky here in terms of if they do an LBO here, it's going to be hard to get financing for a business that's just so bad. So I don't know. It's such a turkey. So this ties slightly into my turkey, which is uh, I guess a turkey in memoriam when I look back at 2013 – one of the things I'll remember is this is the year that longtime Chesapeake Energy CEO Aubrey McClendon finally gave up the corner office and left. He gave us so much in the way of humor. Uh, so I, I, there's no way I can adequately repay him. But uh, but let's talk about Abercrombie and Fitch for just a second because I look at that business and I do look at the CEO and say that guy is a total clown. And just as part of the thesis – for a lot of people, particularly here at The Motley Fool for Chesapeake Energy, was Aubrey McClendon's a clown. And if he ever leaves and they get someone who knows what they're doing and is, doesn't have their hand in the cookie jar, that can be a profitable business. That can be a good stock for the long run. Is part of the, the thesis for Abercrombie and Fitch, wait a minute, just get that guy out. Just get the CEO out of there. And maybe they turn around, or is it just so flawed in so many ways? I mean, it, it, in Chesapeake Energy's defense... It's in the energy industry. It's not in the teen apparel industry. I think that it'd probably be a slight benefit, but still, it's it's such a wave of badness. Then I don't know if just one little guy leaving would do anything. But again, buyout candidate. So if the stock gets bought out for a thirty percent premium, great if you own it today. But I don't know. I wouldn't be banking on that. One go-to culinary item on Thanksgiving Day: pumpkin pie. That's an old standard. That's, that's you, so boring. That's the first no, no, thing no. That but that's a, that's a standard. That's a standard. Look, right. if there's one day in the year you're going to have pumpkin pie, it should be Thanksgiving. That, that's going to be it. That's going to be it. Yeah. David, stuffing. stuffing. There you go. You don't have stuffing every day. You don't have stuffing every day. No. And frankly, stuffing is one of those things that whenever I have it, I think, wow, I got to have this more often. <laughs> yeah, I'm going with stuffing as well. All right, Morgan Housel, David Hanson, guys, thanks for being here and happy early Thanksgiving. Same to you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday. Monday.